0: In human experience, we can't live without ritual because we are symbolic beings. That's the way that we think. That's the way that we live. So when we design commercial experiences, we're going to make rituals. We can't help but do it. But when we don't design them purposefully, we can have some really awful accidents that end up hurting people.
1: I'm David Kepron and this is Next Level Experience Design. When I ask the question or when I suggest or say the word ritual, what do you think? Do you think of animal sacrifices? Do you think of Joe and the volcano? Do you think of bat mitzvahs or bar mitzvahs or going to mass every day? Do you think of your mom's table at Thanksgiving, you know, and all the things that she used to prepare and and the way those, those events used to unfold? Or do you think of getting in your car on Monday morning and simply going to Starbucks and picking up your coffee? Because every morning that people do go to Starbucks and pick up their coffee and order something with an impossibly long name, you know, while it seems rather simple, this repeated process of activities that make coffee drinking a ritual in their daily lives are really actually pretty complex. And and there are a number of elements within those activities that become really instrumental to understanding not just what the Starbucks experience is like, but how your week likely unfolds, how your day unfolds, and how those things make sense. It's really interesting when I think about ritual, because I began to get very interested in ritual back in the late 80s when I was in architecture school at McGill University. And there was a professor who was hired to chair the history theory department or, or program at McGill named Alberto Perez Gomez. And I used to sit in on his lectures because I found both the philosophy and psychology that he imbued his lectures with fascinating but he also talked a lot about ritual and ritual participation. And the idea that embodied experience was absolutely crucial to our understanding of architecture and that being in places um, helped us understand. And that architecture was fundamentally about the reconstruction of cultural ideologies and through the participation in these events, we came to better understand ourselves and our culture and our community and maybe in some strange way, our cosmological connection, you know, to God or something. And so ritual has been a real fascination, so much so that in my own book, A Retail Revolution, which I published in 2014, I devoted a whole chapter to ritual. And I read a lot about Ronald Grimes, a a book called Beginnings in Ritual Studies, um, where he outlined key components of ritual. And I began to sort of pull those together in their relationship to my world then, which was the world of shopping. There are the parallels between rituals and the component pieces of ritual in the sort of formal academic sense. And those things that we do in our connections to brands and experiences and places. And yes, it is grandmother's table or your mom's table at Thanksgiving and bat mitzvahs and church processionals and and even throwing, you know, virgins into the volcano. Uh, It is all of those things and much, much more. And so I've invited uh, Jonathan Cook, who is a researcher and ethnographer, to join the Next Level Experience podcast today to talk about the idea of ritual and begin to unpack some of the component pieces and look at the interrelationship between ritual practice, whether it's embodied, like you're participating in it, or whether you're simply an observer of ritual, and what, if anything, those distinctions mean, and how he is using this deep knowledge of Ritual to help uh, companies, organizations, brands produce better products and workplaces and interrelationships between the people who they connect to in their daily lives or in their workplaces and the customers who frequently buy their products or services. So with that, I say welcome to Jonathan Cook.
0: Thank you for having me here, David.
1: I am all set. I was saying in a previous conversation um, that we were having that I normally come to these discussions with so much of my research done and i have done that but i normally would line up like a hundred questions and i'd only be able to get through you know half of them anyway so i thought that what we'd start to do today is help or have you help us understand Uh, What ritual is all about, because I think we all have preconceptions about rituals, about rites of passage, you know, these these sort of passages that people would go through, you know, young boys going out into the woods and having to do all kinds of things. Um, But rituals are both those big macro experiences. Right. And those very micro experiences, which are like those pieces I was talking about in the intro, those little elements on the purchase process of buying a coffee at Starbucks. All right. So if we can, let's start at this beginning by talking about some of these component pieces. Um, and your website, the Ritual Commerce website, breaks them down into a number of groups. And what I'd love to do is just take each one of those pieces that you have, and it's probably six or seven elements, and pull them apart a little bit and then find where they interrelate to the world of business, you know, brand experiences and, and so the experience economy and that kind of thing, which is often a focus of what we do. Does that make sense?
0: That makes perfect sense you know, David, the way that you're approaching this interview is more like a ritualistic thing, and hopefully for your podcast listeners as well. Um, If you were to come in with a list of questions, you'd be merely gathering information. But uh, the best questions of all are open-ended and go in strange, twisting paths. And so I think that for the two of us, and for your listeners, we're going to come out on the end somewhere quite different than where we intended to go. Uh, so I'm really happy to hear that that's the attitude you're having.
1: I love that. That's this crazy, curious mind of mine, of mine, that takes me in directions on, you know, ill considered, maybe I don't know. I have this idea of of design as being like my responsibility as a designer of places and things. Certainly, brand experience places is to every day find a new pathway to Alice's rabbit hole. That's the way I describe it. So, um, this let us let us go and find our multiple pathways to Alice's rabbit hole. I love this idea that you articulate really well in in the writings about. Um, there was one writing you did called "Upon the Threshold," and. Let me help to preface it, and then I'd love you to dig. You know, do do your ethnography, ethnographic excavation of this idea. You suggest that we think about rites of passage, and that is one way to consider ritual. But really, it's rituals are uh, transformational processes between identities. I think if that seems to be a, a articulation. And you used, or or rather, it was probably uh, Arnold Van uh, Kennep, who you talked about the idea of the threshold between this identity and that identity. And I love the idea of this passage through the doorway. And that doorway is this liminal space between those two identities. I want to stop there. And, and let you sort of unpack some of the details of, of this idea of threshold and the passage from one place to the other, because I love the discussion of the in-between. Um, what happens in the in-between to me is magical, and I'd love to hear you just muse on this idea of the threshold and passage between identities.
0: Absolutely. So this is an architectural question because architecture is, I think, a ritual experience. You want to create the ability for a space to sponsor experiences of identity. And, you know, there are spaces that are very straightforward and support us in identities that are predictable. But then there are others and shopping uh, spaces would be in this category that invite us into mysteries and to behave in ways that we didn't expect. That's what stores want shoppers to do. They don't want them to go in and um, merely perform the function of getting the thing that they have on their list and then getting out as fast as possible. They want you to be lost and to discover not just things about the store, but things about yourself. But the first thing you have to do is set up that store as a place where that can happen. And, you know, the reason I like to study rituals in commercial culture is because they get to all of the magic that we love to take for granted. It gets to the heart of the magic of life. If your life doesn't have magic, what is it worth? Well, the trouble is that we are living in this uh, Post Enlightenment world in which um, things have been disenchanted. Max Weber said uh, over a hundred years ago that our society has been disenchanted, and for many reasons that was a wonderful thing because you can only do some engineering feats when you have that rational ability. But we can't survive psychologically merely on function. We've discovered that over the last year, so. Ritual is about establishing that feeling of magic, even if magic in the Harry Potter sense is not real. And a store is a magical place. It's a place of ritual. Mm -hmm. It has its own rules. And the rules begin at that threshold. So in order to create a coherent ritual, you have to have boundaries for the ritual. Boundaries in time and boundaries in space. So This is an architectural question because a threshold is literally an architectural space and it's metaphorically an entrance into a space as well. A threshold is that place inside a doorway where you're not inside or outside of a room. You're in between the outside space and the inside space. It's the place that invites you to come in. And it announces to you that here in this space, you're going to be doing something different. And a store has to do that. Because, you know, if you're doing what you do in a store, but it's not in a store, that's called theft. It's a crime. (laughs) And so people think that stores are just obvious places, but it's not. It's a highly... Bizarre cultural space where people are able to take things and leave symbolic tokens of value, little talismans like coins or pieces of paper, or we have now these you know ritual cards or, or, or tapping your phone. And how does that even make sense? A foreigner, you know, someone from 200 years ago, might look at what we do now and be absolutely bewildered. But it seems to make logical sense to us. In fact, it's part of a larger ritual system for uh, creating a sense of having value, purpose, and meaning in life. And without that, it's just not worth going on. So it all begins at that threshold, or what they call in Latin, the limen. Uh, And so anthropologists will talk about this being uh, ritual being a liminal space, and all that means is that it's between it's a separate space where different ritual rules apply
1: it's interesting this idea of entry, and I think as an architect who's you, you know been practicing for over thirty years, I really get this idea that entry and the demarcation line between the outside and the inside it may be big or small, right? But I mean, think of, and since we're talking about stores, although we don't have to, um, we could talk about hotels or we could talk about any other place as well, but um, think about any significant environment in which these ritual enactments occur. And that threshold or the entry is always or mostly clearly demarcated, right? I mean, you mostly know where the entry is, and there is a very strange um feeling that you get you like you know the difference between being in and out and there's some transformational process that happens there where the rules of outside no longer apply to the rules of inside and 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 what's interesting and i think for those who are listening um and i spent 20 years designing stores we know that those rules on the inside of stores are very clearly articulated and they're crafted, they're curated to push this process of engagement along in a very carefully curated way. A very, I mean, everything is strategically done and right down to where you walk, how you walk, what you look at, what you see, what's highlighted first, what's not, leading you to that eventual transaction moment, which is, you're right, leaving these interesting tokens of value that you said, you know, in, in form of money or cash or now cards. And then and, and people, may not know that, right? Who simply go shopping every day. But the reality is is that every single point of that process is defined. And that entry mark, that that line between in and out is also very uh is very evident in a lot of cases, but perceptually different in the in the body felt sense of the word.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So a person needs to know that they have become a shopper as -hmm. opposed to who they were before and that's what this um, threshold does is it gives you the line of separation where you become someone different so the rite of passage is actually a great metaphor for what ritual does ritual is a highly symbolic kind of behavior that allows us to become someone different and often the purpose is to change us Permanently in some sense. But in order to do that, we first need to have our attachment to the previous identity broken. Mm -hmm. That needs to be broken. It's not easy because anyone who's had children knows that they hate to let go of the current identity. Think about bedtime. Oh, my daughter, when she was seven years old, I will never forget the night. She said, Fine. I'll go to sleep, but this is the last time I'm never, ever going to sleep again. Because she didn't want to go to sleep. But what do you think she did the next morning? Waking up, I don't want to get out of bed. Now, that's not something to do with the fact that she had a rotten bed. She didn't. What she didn't want to do was change. Because change is exceptionally stressful. You're being asked, to play a different game after you've become comfortable with the rules and things seem to be going well. That's life. I mean, here in the Northeastern United States, we play that game every year with the four seasons. As soon as you get comfortable with how things are, they change. And, you know, that's why traditionally so many of the rituals have to do with holidays of particular times of year because right. you've got to get over that. You've got to move on. Um, so the the threshold helps you to do that. And that's the first element of ritual is separation.
1: You know, one of the things I, I love that you said is that, um you know the the ritual purpose in this idea of separation is it enables a shift between identities right it's like you literally are you're leaving behind this old identity to assume or discover a new one and and you have to do that which is intuitively feels like a very um an act of courage and vulnerability at the same time that you are willing to accept because you don't always know what you're stepping into. I mean, I, I don't need to use the store as a continuing you know, metaphor for this, but uh, when you step into this process, is it, is it known to the initiate of what will happen on the other side of the threshold, or is the discovery of that identity part of what has to happen?
0: Well, it depends on the cultural context, doesn't it? Um, okay. There are things that we do where we feel very much in control of our own process, But there are others where we know that we might lose control and i think shopping is one of those Uh, people have reluctance often to go into a store because they know that they are entering a space that is designed to make them psychologically vulnerable to you know we call it impulse temptation Mm -hmm. but these things Uh, These impulse purposes are actually linked to deep, lasting desires and true parts of who we are. You know, the thing is that we can only handle so much identity load and the idea of purchasing too much. It's a test of your own self-knowledge. It's a test of how big your identity really is and in the form of how much money you can make, how much work you can do to make that money, how much merit you've accumulated, but then also whether you're really going to use those objects, those items at home. So the store is a test of self-knowledge in this really profound sense in the way that a vision quest might have been in different cultures for adolescents coming into adulthood. To enter a store, you have to really be able to master yourself. And so that makes the commercial environment really powerful and enticing, but also intimidating, terrifying for some people.
1: It's funny because, you know, how many stories have you heard where people go in and go, I don't know what happened. I was in there and all of a sudden I had all this stuff in my basket. <laughs> I was leaving and I swear to God, I didn't mean to go in and spend like $400 or whatever, you know, but I came out with all this stuff. And, and gosh, I don't even know some of it. I don't, I don't even need this stuff, you know, uh, which is kind of funny. So I, people do lose themselves in that the moment of excitement of being, I'm not sure that's a ritual (laughs) outcome, uh, or an outcome of participating ritual, but it happens, right? It does happen.
0: It it can happen. Absolutely, you can lose control in a ritual. So you have to have trust. And, you know, we we have to talk about the issue of uh, guidance in a ritual. That's one of the elements in a really effective ritual is a relationship with a guide that you trust to pay attention to what's happening, to make sure things don't get out of hand, but also make sure that that experience is attuned to your own quest for what it is that you really want. So Mm -hmm. for example, you don't want somebody at a department store telling you that you look great in this outfit that actually makes you look like a clown. Uh, just because they know they can get a lot of money from that, that's not a trusting commercial experience.
1: You said uh, in in this particular element, uh, guidance being one of the, the the elements. You said that these guides uh, are needed to help participants understand and apply the meaning inherent in recombined symbols, right? So people enter into these ritual environments and you need to have those guides to help people make sense of what they're seeing now because it may be unfamiliar to them. Now in the store, we all, I think, get the basic symbols, but those guides outside the context of a store, which we're all pretty familiar with, are really important to help guide the process, correct?
0: Yeah, um, and you know, I think in the store we get them and we don't. At them. there are multiple levels of meaning i think like uh, you know if you think about um i've noticed you've got a really nice microphone there in front of you and this tells me um that you have really invested in this identity that you have as a podcast host which is reassuring to me you know even though i think you probably could have spent a lot less money than you did I'm, but I'm glad you think it's right, reassuring
1: yeah. <laughs> because as a podcast host, that's good. I'm glad. So whew, I pulled no, one over.
0: You, when you go off to the, the shelf in the store, let's say Best Buy, they have a range of different ones, and they're all telling you different things. And those aren't just functional attributes. They're symbolic. So um, now in Best Buy, one of the problems that you have in that particular retail environment is that the guides aren't very good. And this happens a lot in retail um, environments these days. You say, well, what, you, what should I get to the person standing there in the company colors? And they say, you know, I really couldn't tell you. What does it say on the box? And then you know that you're lost and you're gonna, you're kind of making it up and it makes the experience less authentic. But the thing is, in a good ritual experience, you are, um, Letting yourself go because um, you've let go of that previous identity, and it's set up um, the entire experience of the ritual to help you do that through a process of disorientation where you lose yourself in your sense of space and time. So, for example, um, a number of years ago, I did a research project for a casino, and Casinos are full of cues of magic and simulation, um, but one of the basic things that they do is they just don't have clocks and they want you to lose that sense of time so that you can gain a sense of possibility. A lot of stores also don't have clocks for that reason. They don't want you being on the clock. They don't want you having a reminder of what you have to do next so that you can be involved in that experience. Some stores, um, department stores, the the jewelry and perfume sections especially for male shoppers are particularly disoriented. You have no idea where you're going. But if you don't know where you're going, if you allow yourself to become lost, you can discover new things. And so it, it opens you up psychologically. And in that open psychological state, that's where you have symbolic recombination that the guides help you through. So symbolic recombination is kind of like uh, genetic recombination. So with genetic recombination, you have your genetic code of your identity taken apart and then mixed back together in the elements. uh, The elements are essentially mixed back together to create something that's like you but different, another version of your identity. And then, of course, that mixes with your mate. Um, Well, with symbolic recombination, what happens is you have the constituent uh, elements of meaning in a particular cultural frame, and they're taken apart in the same way into um, smaller bits that then are recombined in surprising ways. Uh, Artistic expressions, songs, visual displays, stories do these kinds of things. So often uh, art, storytelling, music takes place in a ritual framework uh, when it's most emotionally effective and it's entertaining and stimulating, but it also, when it's effectively designed, it gives you a sense of who you can become it gives you this test of understanding your familiarity with the culture and then playing with that to make up a new version of yourself that you can leave the ritual experience with. I mean, in shopping, uh, those symbolic elements are the objects that you put in your cart to buy and how those can come together uh, to create a new version of yourself after you leave.
1: It's interesting that for years, you know, I've always described it as of identifying with certain brands is to fill in the holes of our Swiss cheese personas, you know, to find ways to acquire identity in the absence of actually having one that we have focused and worked on and that we're attuned to within ourselves, right? So that you acquire it from the outside, in the absence of being able to find it internally. And it seems like a, an interesting, I know that may or may not resonate with you, but this idea is that I think, yes, there are clearly brands have ideologies upon which they're based and the acquisition of their products or, or signing up for uh, purchasing services or products clearly sets up um, a link into an identity or a social group or or meaning about what that brand is all about, right?
0: Yeah, but I think you shouldn't be so harsh on yourself, David, to think oh, that thank you. You know, people have this idea that commercialism is somehow a fake ideology. And I, I like that. to think of it as a really very ancient religion um, of, of a sort that we don't like to think of in that way. But, um, you know, this can actually be a really deep and nourishing and healthy kind of experience um, a, a lot of people these days like to talk about having one authentic identity that is their true selves and everything else is just illusion and getting in the way but that's not the way that we work um, in uh, our actual society we can't be just one person for everybody and be true to that all the time. I mean, Mm -hmm. if we think about the most decent guy um, from 20th century television, it was Fred Rogers in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? But he exhibited this because at the end of every show and at the beginning of every show, he had to change his clothes. He had to take his outside fancy shoes off when he came at the beginning of the show and put on his comfortable sneakers now was he being a fraud because when he was outside he was wearing fancy shoes no he was adopting a different kind of personality which was not going to be the personality of what he had to be in order to interact in a healthy way with children and that's okay Okay. so when Um, we go to work we have to be a certain way when we Uh, Go home, we have to be a certain way. And then there are lots of other places where we have to take on those identities. So part of what we do when we're going shopping is going shopping for the tools that can help us to engage in those kinds of rituals of transformation, micro-rituals throughout the day, like Mr. Rogers changing his shoes. And yeah, it's a mask, it's a costume, but that doesn't make it less real. It's just a different version of ourselves and it's okay to be more than one thing. We have to in our society because we're complex right now.
1: That is true. You know, it's funny when you say that this idea of masks. I have a fascination with masks. I'm not I have for a long time. In fact, when I was in Venice um at a speaking engagement a few years ago, I literally had to buy extra luggage because I bought you know so many venetian masks and i have masks from thailand and i have masks from uh south america and i I love the idea of masks but what what is what is interesting about what you just said to me is that not not that i feel that it's uh fraudulent to be in these place these places where you're taking on these personas that are not really part of who you are Um, but that it's okay in the same way that the idea of original play allows us to shift between personalities, between good guy and bad guy. And in that enactment of play, we learn a lot. We learn about how to interact with others. We learn a lot about empathy. We learn, you know, about an empathic extension and, and how the rules of cultural games or society are, are played out, you know? And I think that's really important. That is true. And I think, um, to not, um, Yes, there is this sort of, you know, bad rap of capitalism uh, and and the whole world of shopping, you know, shopping therapy and things like that. But the reality is, is that uh, it's okay, and, and that if if when you're in it, you understand that you're within the ritual experience, and when you're not in it, you also get that too, and that you'll be able to have that sort of flexibility or agility to move in and out of those spaces uh, between personalities and come back to what would be qualified as the real world. Does that make sense? I,
0: It it does, although I would make a distinction between commercialism and capitalism. So, um, and I'm not about to go uh, Bernie Sanders socialist on you, although I love Bernie, great guy. (laughs) Um, But um, capitalism is a particular kind of mythological relationship with money, and it's not the only one that we engage in. And commercialism is actually a rival To capitalism in um, the way that it's um, currently organized. So the way that I think about it, commercialism is actually about a deeply culturally embedded, authentic system that enables people to go through these micro rituals, to have flexible identities, to be fluid, and therefore to be in direction of their own lives. Capitalism looks at this in terms of the numbers and in terms of uh, trying to hoard wealth in particular areas. Um, and that's a different kind of ideology with um, a rival form of symbolism we could get into, but that's more plutocratic, whereas commercialism. Mm. Commercialism, mm-hmm. that, commerce comes from the name of an ancient Roman god, Mercury. It's actually religious. Uh, And Mercury was the the god of communication, uh, of merchants, but also of thieves. And uh, Mercury hated to have wealth accumulated in one place, wanted it to be traded across borders here and there, keep it fluid. So Mercury was the god of rituals, whereas um, the plutocratic god was Pluto, the god of the underworld who takes wealth and puts it in a cave underground and tries to hold on to it forever and ever and ever. And those two are classic rivals. So I think that the benefit for the most people is going to be through commercialism rather than the plutocratic capitalism. But they're probably both always going to be there.
1: So you know,'m I'm, I'm sitting here and and this is not a visual medium, but like I'm smiling like this huge smile like <laughs> going, okay, my head's exploding. I never thought we were going to go to Greek mythology here, but this is really good. I like this. <laughs> this is re- really good. Um, I want to get back to this idea of symbolic recombination just for a moment and then we can move on to some of the other uh, key elements of ritual. Uh, you said that cultural innovation is powered by symbolic recombination. On the podcast we talk a lot about innovation and sort of where we're going and i love this idea that cultural innovation is powered by this symbolic recombination help me understand what that means from your point of view
0: well you know the real cultural innovators are not people in corporate borders they're kids young people who go out shopping And they get stuff, and they put it together in ways that their parents and the people in those companies never really anticipate. Um, Again, it's like that biological model that we have. Um, Sex is powerful on an evolutionary kind of scale because it enables each generation to be a little bit different to take those tools and codes and instructions and play with them and, and recreate them and see how they come out. And so a ritual is a place of play because it has alternative kinds of rules. That's another one of those elements of ritual is taboo and transgression. So there are things that inside a ritual that you ordinarily would do that you're not allowed to do um inside the ritual but then there are also uh, opportunities to break the rules um, to do things that you usually wouldn't be allowed to do and Mm -hmm. by breaking those rules and having new rules it's a it's a way of playing a game in which you're testing out what you could be Pretending that you aren't the person who walked in the door, but now you've become someone else, and you're going to become someone else when you walk out with whatever you leave with. So you're playing along the way with all of those symbols that you encounter because each symbol is a little mirror of an aspect of yourself. And so through uh, the assembly of shopping cart, through a song that you sing, through visual artwork, that you experience, you get to look at that and say, is that thing right? Or could we shift those pieces around? I don't know. I I like to think of uh, that symbolic play um, in terms of the ancient story of the minotaur. And the minotaur was a monstrosity, half human, half bull. But in that ancient cultural context, the bull had real meaning. That bowl was from uh, a sacred bull uh, from the ocean god Poseidon, who was given to an earthly king as a gift. But it was supposed to be temporary. You don't hold on to it. But this, this king was plutocratic, and he wanted to keep it. So it ended up breeding with his wife and creating the monstrosity of the minotaur. In the story, that minotaur is a symbolic recombination. And that entire story of the minotaur is about what happens when you try to combine divine things with earthly things and when you don't recognize the separation that should be there everything that happens in the story happens because that mixing is taking place well of course i mean no one wants to create a minotaur a monstrosity but you also have Uh, Lots of ancient Greek stories about demigods, earthly offspring of uh, divine human uh, romantic experiences, we could say. And so those are some of the highest forms. We have the opportunity for monstrosity and for heroism, both in the um, symbolic recombination ritual. Uh, And that's why commercialism can be degrading but it can also be ennobling. And that's why you have to have a conscious way of designing it. And the thing that happens is that in human um, in human experience, we can't live without ritual because we are symbolic beings. That's the way that we think, that's the way that we live. So when we design commercial experiences, we're going to make rituals. We can't help but do it. But when we don't design them purposefully, we can have some really awful accidents that end up hurting people. Uh, or when we're only thinking about the money. On the other yeah. hand, we really can help people with this stuff.
1: I'm curious as you say that, that we're ritual beings. And I have, um, I know a little bit about neuroscience enough to know how we're wired for. Connection and community and empathy and 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 these things that we share and social structures and why this year has been particularly difficult for virtually everybody, um, unless you were to begin with a hermit who you know somehow didn't mind isolation. Um, it's it's been in many ways, and I use this word purposely, it's been painful to be isolated. And while this interaction through this medium allows us to see each other. There are so many things about it that don't work for us. Like to look at you on the screen, which I need to do to gauge your reaction uh, is one thing. But as I'm looking at you on the screen, you can tell because I'm not looking at the camera that I'm not looking at you. And there's a weird disconnect and dichotomy in the interaction, which is which is complex on a number of levels uh, for sure. But as you say this idea about being ritual beings, I'm really curious as to why that is so, I mean, I understand the idea about why we needed to connect and work together in social structures that allowed for safety and propagation of the species and, and you know, that turned these maybe isolated, you know, individuals walking the, the Serengeti or something, you know, to being connected in groups and how that just made more sense for all kinds of reasons, but why ritual, why was ritual so critical to, to who we are as people? Is it simply because it gives us order among the chaos, you know, that we, that, For example, let me, this is turning out to be a longer question as I muse through this and think about uh, how to untangle it, but it was a great book I read years and years ago called The Idea of a Town by Joseph Rickwart. and he talked about this idea that, you know, the actual making and literal transformation of the geometry of the heavens on the ground was how a lot of cities were laid out, because this, this organized not that never changing structure of the planets and the stars could be transposed onto the chaos of everyday life on here on earth, where we couldn't tell when the next hurricane was going to come or when the next animal would eat us, et cetera, et cetera. So there was some, there was some stability in the transformation of those celestial geometries onto the ground to help create structures of, of cities and things like that. Um, And so I go back to the question, which is, why does ritual become so important? Is it simply because it allows us to have uh, a sense of structure amidst the chaos of of our lives? Or is there some other underlying reason why ritual is so fundamental to who we are?
0: Yeah, I think you are getting to it. Only I would tweak what you have to say 5% which is to say that it allows... Us-
1: Go ahead. Please tweak yeah. it 10% just to make it even uh, more rich, will you?
0: Please, it'll be better. I haven't actually measured the difference between 5 and 10%. But okay. um, yeah, ritual allows us to have both chaos and order. We need both things. We need stability so that we have things that we can count on. But then we also need to have the ability to change that stability. You know? Um, I mean, think about what happened at the end of 2020, moving into the beginning of 2021. That is a great example of what happens when the rituals of transition are not observed in the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, When you have a president flouting Um, the conventions of the transfer of power, it leads to chaos and to uncertainty, to fear, to violence. And that could have been a lot worse. And whichever side you're on, I don't think that anyone feels good about having that amount of disorder. But on the other hand, our country was founded on that kind of disorder. You need to have Mm -hmm. revolution as well. I mean, what we Mm -hmm. want to aim for is a system where we can accept rituals of chaos and transformation that don't end up killing people, that don't end up destroying lives. So that's why I think it's important to think about ritual purposely, because when you don't, um, things go wrong. You get it half right. And sometimes you get rituals that are misunderstood uh, in different ways, by different groups, and conflict arises. But it's essentially an ecological question, what you're getting to. Um, because order and chaos, is uh, these are the two basic things that make the universe go. And life, this thing that we do, and not just us, but also the, the germs and the bugs and the, all the critters out there, that is a game of trying to organize order and chaos. And anthropologists will tell you that ritual is a tool for doing that. So um, one anthropologist in particular talks about how life actually is analog and it has these gradients where things change and it's ambiguous, it's mysterious. Ritual creates the appearance of certainty. Uh, of transition and that gives you confidence that you understand the rules of the game so ritual creates that game and that's why ritual is not just a human activity Uh, animals do rituals Uh, last Mm -hmm. year i watched two bald eagles uh, fly toward each other join their claws over cayuga lake um here in ithaca new york above the lake hundreds of feet high they they uh held onto each other's claws, and started spiraling down toward the earth in this plummeting dance, letting go at the last second. And then they came together and did it again. That was a mating ritual. Now, why is a bird going to do that kind of thing? Because it has to bond with another bird. But you can't just go bonding around all the time. Because then you're going to have eagles leaving their nests, abandoning their kids to have a new fling. You have to have structure to that kind of chaotic experience. You have to have a, a situation where you have an experience that's intense and bonds you together, but you keep together too. So it's both safety and danger. And the fact that you need both of those uh, is you know, the reason that we have ritual. And the reason it's so crazy, ritual, is because... Uh, it just gets more and more complex with every iteration. And that's why life on Earth is so beautiful, because all these animals are out there doing crazy mating rituals, becoming more and more complex. And we're doing that in our human culture, too. Um, more and more crazy all the time, but beautiful, too.
1: You know, the interesting thing about this destabilization process, right? And And this brings element, you know, number five or whatever it is, disorientation. Uh, into into the question here. I think one of the things you were saying in terms of of the guides is that the guides need to allow this sense of being lost in ritual to happen, right? They, they can't be do this, do this, do this, do this, follow the path and you're going to get to grandmother's house. There is some sense that they need to allow for this idea of getting lost on the path. That speaks to me and also does this idea, this element of disorientation to the idea of helping ritual initiates so those who are participating in rituals to develop a sense of agency um in in their behavior right i mean it, because if i'm disoriented well one i'm, I'm going to look to someone else to get me out of that space or i'm going to look to myself to get me out of that space and it seems to me like there's something about this that is i end up being s- at once reliant on the guide but ultimately self-reliant to be able to find my way through the path right out of the, out of the minotaurs um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The the Minotaur was at the center. The labyrinth. There you go. Um, is is that does that make any sense in terms of this this, this disorientation and development of the sense of agency or self reliance, and that there is something about that that is this coming to a new sense of self?
0: Yes, because disorientation without guidance, without a ritual structure to surround it is nausea and horror. It's awful. Nobody wants to feel that way. What it needs to be is like a a kid on a playground. That's another ritual space. It's a space that's designed for play, and play is what ritual is all about. So as a parent, you know, you should play with your kids. You should do things with them. But you also need to let them have their space. And um, so there's a balance to be held. The, the guide needs to show up and say, hey, I'm here for you. And here are some things to think about. And oh, that thing over there, don't do that. That's dangerous. you know." But right. like a good parent on the playground, also be able to step back. And that kid is going to forget that the guide is there and think that they're they have the freedom to improvise and do new things all on their own and feel special and then show off about how great they are very pleased with themselves but yeah there needs Mm -hmm. to be a a good nurturing uh, guidance as well absolutely
1: i think that's that sense you're right I, i love the analogy of of parents allowing their kids to go off and i know there's lots of of studies about this uh, in child psychology and in developmental psychology, about those kids who do that, and they will they will go off and they'll venture and they'll look back just to see if mom or dad is there or the primary caregiver is there, and they then develop that sense of confidence that what they're doing is um, is okay, uh, and uh, um, and that they they do have the safe place to come back to. And you said that in in the writings about disorientation, designers or ritual experiences need to put in place agents of disorientation to remove landmarks to a previous path. So they are people who are helping support this and guiding this sense of disorientation need to do that, but at the same time, not necessarily direct people back to where they used to be. But um, th- this is fascinating to me. This idea that you purposely put in place these uh, these these elements that promote this idea of disorientation.
0: Yeah. Well, that, you know, the thing is that there are different kinds of rituals for different purposes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have rituals where the whole purpose is really just to have the psychological and social release of playing and becoming fluid and letting go of concerns. Vacation is one of those. And we don't necessarily aim to become different people when we go on vacation, although there are um, trips that can do that. Um, And, uh, you know, going out to play on the playground is like that, too. You just want to let the kid get it out and explore themselves and no real purpose toward what happens. But then in order to maintain An effective running society, we also need to have rituals that do have a particular end. And in those situations, the ritual guide really needs to pay attention to not just how to open the ritual, but how to close it and how to introduce that person to the new identity that they're supposed to have. And often that doesn't really happen in ritualized experiences like human resources. People can get lost when that's not working effectively. Mm -hmm. That's a very painful painful process, but we have a more just, equitable, open and fluid uh, society with empowered individuals when we have designed rituals for people to transform the things that they need to about themselves and for those guides with experience, with expertise in the process of transformation to move them forward. I'm just hoping that we have more of that. I think we actually have less of that. in the way that our economy works. It's, it's a little bit uh, of this Calvinist idea of just go out there and somehow work hard and prove yourself and show your merit without any structure for helping people to do that. And the thing is that, um, in a sense, uh, and this last year of COVID-19 has shown this, we're in a, pure, a permanent state of liminal transformation. Our society, changing really fast, uh, faster than anyone really can keep track of it. Anyone who pretends that they know uh, what's going on is is a liar. None of us know what's going on. We don't know enough to know what the wise choices are. uh, And we've let go of those systems of guiding people into paths where they can be fulfilled and where they have options. Uh, And instead, we're acting Uh, as if it's 100 years ago and there are only a few options that that everybody understands. So that's my my big concern with where we're going.
1: So I see, and I agree with you, I see here um, a real existential sort of breaking point or crisis, um, not just specifically because of the world of the pandemic, but also because uh, if you follow some of the thinking around the pace of change and the the moments of significant transformation that are being driven by huge technological advances, right? That, That this change is exponential. It's not a linear equation that, you know, faster and faster, or the deltas between these significant moments of change are becoming smaller and smaller. So I've often talked about this idea that it seems to me, if you follow the mathematics of the pace of change being exponential, we will ultimately become perpetually in the in-between, in this liminal space between one significant moment and the next. And I don't know you want to talk about disorientation as an element of ritual. I'm really curious about how this fits together here, but I don't know that we are particularly well adapted to be perpetually living in this in-between space where we're moving from one sort of reality to the next. Now, it's not necessarily right now or maybe not even 50 years from now, but one thing is for sure what's happened in even the past 10 years in terms of technology advances. I'm going to use the smartphone because everyone does. Um, you know, Think of what's happened within the context of Social media sphere and digital transformations has driven so much cultural change that I don't know that we're well adapted to deal with that. And I'm I'm really curious about the existential crisis at hand about being perpetually in this liminal you know space of transformation and whether we can whether we can deal.
0: Yeah, I I think we have to learn to deal, and I think the first step has to be admitting that we don't know how. But even admitting that it's a problem, so we see this happening as I hope we are leaving the pandemic. I hope that's Mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. There are people who are beginning to say, hey, you know, having people work at home all the time has been very cost efficient. um, And their productivity has gone up. And that's been great. Maybe we should do that all the time. Um, And, you know, the one thing that they're ignoring is that almost everybody has been completely miserable and on the verge True. at many times of breaking down. So if you don't care about the human misery, it's, it's been a great success. That kind of attitude has been there in the development of digital technology where, um, you know, there's been the development of technology without the idea of what it does to our experience of being happy, of being fulfilled. And I think we need to have dedicated time, space, um, resources, uh, and, and uh, people with expertise um, to rehumanize our experience and to actually make it less efficient, because that's another thing that a ritual is. A ritual is a thing that, in a functional sense, does not have to take place, you know? It doesn't. People don't need to get married. They could just make babies. And we could find some kind of rationalist system for the uh, most effective uh, child-rearing of of those kids. But, you know, when people experimented with that kind of thing under communism or Nazism in the 20th century, you ended up with broken children. Because Mm -hmm. we are not efficient, we're not merely brains with, Uh, feet walking around to get us places. We are hormonal uh, creatures. Uh, We are social creatures. We are emotional creatures. And you can't quantify all of that and have people be happy. Mm -hmm. And happiness actually matters as a basic level of survival. It's not a luxury. I think... We've done amazing things. I have great respect for technological innovators because they've helped us to survive too. So I don't need to be putting them down. But I think that the challenges that we face now, that we've gone through this information revolution, the digital revolution, uh, the challenges that we face are to have a human revolution. We have loads of information that we can't use and we need to make it meaningful again. We need to find a way to bring ourselves together, not just in terms of effective governance, but in terms of relating to each other socially. I know that the way that I'm feeling, after a year of social isolation where I've been working from home and being responsible and seeing almost nobody, I'm kind of afraid to get back out there I don't know what I'm going to do when I see another person with a mask and have to have a conversation in person again. And yet I desperately want that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that's just an amplification of what was happening before the pandemic. We were already lonely. We were already isolated. And it's not just for us as individuals, but companies are groups of people with a culture where they're all aiming towards something that they have in common that's an effective company and to have spaces for that kind of experience again i think is essential for our survival going forward
1: we have covered separation and disorientation and taboo and transgression guidance and symbolic recombination as elements and the remaining one to dig to dig at is uh trial and reward tell me about what this yeah. means for you
0: well it Means different things and different rituals. But, um, you know, to have a trial and the potential of a reward is really what a ritual is all about. It's about testing whether the person who's gone through the ritual experience gets it, whether they are ready to transform. And there has to be the possibility that they aren't ready, and that they'll have to go back and try again. Um, So everything that you've learned, everything that you've encountered in the rest of the experience is put to the test, often by the guide who has been bringing a person forward. Um, My daughter is taking karate in high school instead of gym, and her instructor is the dean of the school. And there is a process of moving uh, from one color belt to another. And my daughter experiences a huge amount of stress, Um, not in the learning. There's the, you know, the exercise and the strain of that. But it's in that test that she really becomes anxious. And yet that anxiety fuels her performance, And she gets out there and she does the maneuvers. And, you know, she's not actually beating somebody up. This is a symbolic display of different movements that have ideas about mastering yourself and your body and your relationships to others. And she gains a new level of confidence in her ability to be someone independent out in the world with that color. What does the actual color of a belt do? Nothing. Nothing. But that's the reward of saying you have attained a new level of experience. And so in order for a a reward to have meaning, there has to be a sense of sacrifice or um, uh, the possibility of loss. And, you know, sacrifice is this thing that we do when we make something sacred by giving something else up. And so often in a ritual, the test is what we're willing to give up in order to attain the new identity. And in a store, we give up money. And people are very fond of insulting the value of money. But think about what goes into that money. I mean, I know when I spend money uh, of a significant value, I think about what I had to do to get Mm -hmm. that, about Mm -hmm. the time I had about the experiences I couldn't have because I wanted to have the ritual experience of work. I got the reward of money. And therefore, I got the ability to become something new, to use that money. That's a a ritual exchange. It's not just mathematical. It's not just Adam Smith. It's something more than that. Uh, Now, we know that money is not enough to motivate people on its own. You have to give a system of meaning, of purpose in work and in shopping uh, so that they feel that it's all really worth something, that there's a point to it all. Um, So actually, the trial, that test, is not just a trial for the person going through the ritual, but it's a trial for the ritual system to prove its own relevance. So that then you can have the guy say, okay, you've achieved this now. Here are the new rules. Here are the rules for the system that you can go into to have your new identity and who you're going to be. Congratulations. Um, Without that, it's just kind of having a fun time playing around, which is okay, but it's not a complete ritual system. And, And that's the other thing, is that with all of these elements of ritual, you can have aspects of the power of ritual without having all of them. It's not like some crazy... British baking show recipe, where if you don't get everything right, it's going to fall apart into disaster. Mm -hmm. No, we can have aspects of ritual with just one or two of these elements. But every time that you design another one of these elements, it makes it stronger, more relevant, more effective. And so I think that that may be part of what can help us through the disorientation, the crisis that we're going through now economically and socially. That's true. Uh,
1: I love that. This is not a crazy cooking British show, Um, which is, this is not the Iron Chef of life experience here. This is, you know, some other deal. You know, it it is interesting within the context of the hospitality space, uh, which is, uh, I'm recently familiar with. um, There is a large push towards providing travel experiences that are really designed not just on the fact that it looks pretty and it's a nice, and you got a comfy bed and you know a great restaurant, but really that these places are geared towards purpose and meaning, that the, that purpose that you go specifically. For not just a getaway, but to do something that is transformational, that is regenerative, that and so you have a lot of these brands regenerative travel, you've got design hotels, you've got um, Sonder and Selena and Six Senses and a number of brands that are now you know in the marketplace and providing a very different way to think about committing to a travel experience that's transformative that's that and and you have to do something you know whether you're planting an organic garden or you're i don't know helping some village you know build a road you know in the himalayas somewhere or something like that and i find that really interesting because i think it is a search and i I probably have said years ago you know people are finished filling their pantries and i know this is a pretty privileged view when people are finished filling their pantries, they look to do something else, you know, which is I think to fill their hearts and their minds and and the, the same for others around them. You know, you hopefully become um, more outward focused than inward focused. And that is clearly a, a trend that I see growing in, in the hospitality space. I wanted to get to um, a couple more things before we closed. And this was an idea or something you wrote about. And I said, oh, I got to ask him about that. And it's uh, the, the term is thick data. And um, I, I'm hoping you can help me understand what thick data is. And I think I have an idea, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what that is and how it, what's this interrelationship here with the things we're talking about.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he well, he says with a deep breath, gosh. people. do. <laughs> <too. sighs> <sighs> yes. Now, this gets to the question of everything that's been happening, everything, okay, in the last 20 years, Uh, in the way that our lives have been transformed by thin data, Uh, and, you know, really big piles of it. But the idea is that you've been getting lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of it. But what is the quality of the data? And I don't just mean, is it accurate? there's another dimension to uh, information and that is relevance and that is meaning it's context and um, so instead of having only systems of big data what if we began to engage in another kind of experience of research So um, a lot of research has um, uh, development, a lot of research development has been focused on the ability to automate the accumulation and processing of massive amounts of data. The problem with that is that it alienates the people from the data. And I'll talk about the clients of the data. Uh, Artificial intelligence can do amazing things with data, come up with really interesting conclusions, pick up on patterns that people couldn't perceive. But the problem is that once it becomes powerful enough to do that, artificial intelligence becomes a black box, meaning that nobody ever will understand how artificial intelligence figured out the results that it gets which means that you start to have machines and systems telling people what's true without people experiencing it without people understanding why it's true and how it's true and that stuff is great for example in developing a vaccine I really want that to have lots of artificial intelligence and big data in it, for sure. But when it comes to getting people to take the vaccine, a question like that, big data is not enough because it's about people doing things that make no sense. It's about people who could die, who are watching the economy around them fall apart, their society fall apart, their kids not going to school not taking the action, the very action, that could help to end all of that suffering. And the reason that people are not doing that isn't just that they're unintelligent. It's that they're dealing with complexity and anxiety and too much information. And it's in those circumstances that we need to understand the cultural context. And that's thick data. So the idea of thick data comes uh, out of anthropology, Clifford Gertz, and uh, he talked about the idea of being an ethnographer who is an observing researcher, someone who goes out and watches people. Uh, and this ethnographer watches someone blink their eyes. Only was it a blink? Was it just reflex? Or were they trying to communicate something? You know, uh, could it have been uh, more of a wink or a sarcastic comment. And can, how can you really tell? Well, you can't. You have to interpret that. And then the fact is that in research, you're always going to have subjective things like that. Because as the old aphorism has it, you can't judge a book by its cover. You can't interpret emotion by face value. Although there are people in artificial intelligence who are trying to do that, actually... A frown doesn't always mean that you're angry or upset. Sometimes it means that you're thinking. You might be curious. You might be frightened when you smile. So when human beings don't make sense, that's when you need to accompany the big data with the other dimension, which is subjective human interpretation and experience. And you're talking about Ronald Grimes. Uh, he did great work in helping a lot of students learn how to study ritual. And that book that you were reading, I think, had Mm -hmm, some of that. One of the most important ideas there was you, you need to take time and you need to record a lot and you can't just try to be fast about it. You cannot just come in with a few short questions and get your answers and be done with it. You have to sit and experience the world and encounter surprises and having that extra dimension of uncertainty and response to that is part of the thickness of human experience uh, that's underlying the bigness of big data we go into that dimension and then you can keep the big data human and relevant so it's about a proper balance in research wow i um
1: this has been a thick conversation, man. Uh, which has been <laughs> which has been great. And and as you were talking there, you reminded me of uh, the Lisa Feldman Barrett um, "How Emotions Are Made" book, which which I think is is right. I think we think we have facial action coding systems in place with AI and sort of facial action you know recognition systems um, that you can have the same look, but with with two very different. Affects behind them that are entirely dependent on context. So one might look like surprise, and in one case, and then you change the story that underpins that that sort of physical reaction, and you make it a very different reading than uh, what that you know reaction, what, what you might presume that reaction to actually mean. So it's important this idea of context for sure. This has been. Um, mm-hmm wonderful conversation and and I, I think the power of ritual in understanding context and meaning and the the intricacies and literally the I, I love this idea that you talk about micro rituals they are around in us in almost everything that we do that establish a sense of meaning for who we are the brands we connect to the experiences we make the family relationships we have etc 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 uh and really really important so i want to thank you for joining us um on the show, it's it's. I have to say, you um, you're somewhat of an outlier in the context of data architecture, technology, and the arts. But in in reality, when you look at the power of ritual, it is intertwined into all of those those things that we talk about on the show and the things that we engage in everyday life. So I want to say thank you to Jonathan Cook, researcher and ethnographer. Um, take a look at his websites, ritual commerce, and also ritual marketing is an, another one that has really interesting content in there. And if you want to find some more text and and information on these elements of ritual that we've talked about, please look at that. It's uh, it's worth the read. And um, also on your website, you have a number of other articles that you can peruse that uh, Jonathan has written that are really, really interesting. So Jonathan Cook, thank you for your time.
0: David, thank you for your time. I mean, this is really what it's all about. And uh, I appreciate your podcast for taking the time to look at the more soulful human aspects of what we're doing we really need people like you to uphold that vision and to remind us that there is a purpose there is a point to it all and the search for meaning, even if we don't get it all um, just that attempt to bring that back into the design taking it to the next level as you might say that that is really worthwhile And you make the world better for the rest of us through those design experiences, I think.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design. And please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.